Welcome to the Indie Pram podcast on IndieLive.radio. And my special guest this week is Tom Wills, who's a candidate for Shetland for the 2021 Scottish general election. Hello to you, Tom. I'm very pleased to be here. Hi, yeah, thanks for having me on. That's a pleasure. Tom, you've stood once in a by-election before, but for the benefits of those who don't know you, would you like to explain to listeners where you come from, what got you to where you are today? Sure, yeah. So I'm from Shetland, born here in Larwick and grew up on the island of Bresse, just opposite Larwick. Yeah, all my schooling up here, I was fairly obsessed with surfing and sailing when I was a young lad, so I decided to get into renewable energy. Yeah, just fascinated by the idea of kind of harnessing all that energy for all that terrible weather for useful ends. So I went to Glasgow and did mechanical engineering with an Erasmus year in France and then ended up working on wave and tidal power projects in in Orkney and subsequently in uh, South America as well. A master's in marine engineering and then ended up working on this tidal power project in Shetland and when Tavish Scott stood down, I sent a text to my friend Miriam Brett asking her if she was going to stand or if she knew who was because my boss had been asking me, my boss at the Tidal Clare Company. And Miriam said, no, I can't do it, but I've got an idea, dot, dot, dot. And uh, <laughs> she phoned me later that day and that ended up, once I'd had it approved by family and work, I ended up being the candidate uh, here in Shetland for the by-election last August and yeah quite a life-changing experience really found it really energizing to be talking about how to yeah build a better Shetland and work towards us becoming a more civilized European country than the track we're headed down at the moment. I take it from that that it was a conversation that you had at your work quite often so hence your boss asking you. Yeah, well, it wasn't, it wasn't actually, my boss just said, have you seen the news? Have you seen Tavish Scott stood down? And I said, oh no, I hadn't seen that. And he said, I wonder who'll be standing. And I said, yeah, I'm not sure. I'll ask, I'll ask uh, Miriam. Genuinely wasn't on my radar at all. But, you know, I am from quite a political family. My mum and dad have been quite active politically throughout their lives. So I've kind of, I've grown up steeped in it. But yeah, it was a big fork in the road. Yeah. Uh-huh. Were your parents involved actively as far as campaigning or would they stand for office as well? Yeah, I mean, my dad has stood for the Labour Party up here 20-odd years ago. He was a candidate. And again, I think in the 70s at one point, he was a, a Labour candidate as well. Right. Managed to hold on to his deposit once. Um, <laughs> but he was, he was, dad was also a local independent councillor uh, in the SIC. And my mum... Yeah, she was active in the Labour Party her whole life, but didn't uh, hasn't stood for office. Right. I came from a background of voting Lib Dem. Uh, right. Never, never a member of the party. But were you always inclined initially to towards Labour, or did you come in straight away with an interest towards the Scottish National Party? Um, I think in my very early days, yeah, I was considering. That's like high school, maybe. But I joined the SNP in 2007. Yeah, and then uh, for a while I was uh, supportive of the Greens just because I thought they were the only party at that time, you know, taking climate change seriously enough. But when Brexit happened, 
I just thought, uh, you know, we need to, we need a popular front here. We need a big tent party like the SNP to get independence over the line so we can become a more civilized European country. Uh huh. Well, yeah. it's 302 miles between Lerwick and Edinburgh. How do you feel Shetland differs so much from the rest of the country? Yeah, it's interesting. I, I didn't really think of myself as particularly Scottish until I went to university. I think if you're growing up in Shetland, you're a Shetlander first and last, you know. Yeah, it's, it's 12 hours on the boat to Aberdeen. It's a little bit longer than that to Norway and Faroe. So, uh, yeah, we're, we're very isolated up here. And, yeah, it's quite a distinct culture and history. Obviously, I think 400, 400 odd years ago, it was still part of Norway. So there's, there's the, the Scandinavian link. I think there was a survey quite recently. It was 60, 70% of people did have, you know, feel that they were some, some parts Scottish. But I think most people up here would say they were, you know, they would say they're a Shetlander first and foremost. Right. So does that have any implications going forward in relation to desire of people within Shetland for either greater autonomy or I think the expression is to go pharaohs? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, there there was the Shetland movement in the 70s where they put up candidates for the independence of Shetland. I would say the more recent kind of upsurge in support for autonomy has been, it's, it hasn't really come from the bottom up. It's been led by being more of a councillor's revolt than a people's revolt, revolt so far. But there's there's certainly a significant number of people in Shetland who are open to the idea of autonomy. And, you know, with Pharaoh being so close, it seems like, you know, it's not a ridiculous proposition in the way it might be in some other areas, you know. But uh, I, I don't think that actually, I don't think the majority of people in Shetland want to go the full Pharaoh. But I think there, there probably would be a majority for some more powers here and, you know, reform of local government to increase decision-making powers locally. And that's something I'd be supportive of as well. Yeah. Well, considering that Shetland hasn't seen as much powers except in the last 20 years, because the rest of the time it's been under Westminster rule, it's really a case that surely with independence for Scotland, uh, Shetland would have greater opportunities and I'd like to ask you what sort of opportunities you would like to see Shetland benefit from by Mm. voting yes. Absolutely no I see Scottish independence as a way of empowering Shetland and other areas of Scotland and again you don't you don't have to look very far it's about you have to look about as far as Aberdeen to see examples of areas that are um you know, regions of Norway and the Faroe Islands, even the municipalities in Faroe Islands, um, which, uh, yeah, have more local decision-making. The the SNP has been committed to that and making some moves towards it for a long time, but I do think we do need to do much more. You know, there was the, I forget which year it was now, but there was the Lerwick Declaration, which Alex Salmond made, um, which was just to formalise the fact that the SNP is committed to the principle of subsidiarity, the idea that decisions should be made as locally as possible. And that was kind of in response to the Our Islands, Our Future campaign, which was a kind of coalition of Shetland, Orkney and the Western Isles, which sought to kind of capitalise along, capitalise on the discussions around Scottish independence and argue that, you know, if, if more powers were going to be coming back to Scotland, that they shouldn't be 
held in Edinburgh. You know, they should be uh, devolved down, passed down to the local authorities. Interestingly, there's a quote from uh, Joe Grimmond, which I I like to uh, put out and about, and I'll be doing a lot more of in the election, where he basically talks about, you know, that he doesn't like the, the terminology around devolution because it implies that power rests in the centre and has to be graciously devolved back down to the outlying areas. But I think he was angling at, and I would agree that, you know, power rests in the community and the community should decide how much of that power it wants to delegate back to the centre. So, yeah, and you, if you've read any of Leslie Riddick's work, you can see that the the comparison, whether it's the size of our local authorities or, you know, the number of people who stand for election and the turnout, the comparisons are not very favourable uh, with the rest of Europe. So there's a lot, uh, you know, there's, there's room for fresh thinking, but there's also some directly transferable existing solutions across Europe that we could look at adopting. Yeah. Yeah, no, I haven't read Leslie's, but I have been to talks that she's given and uh, was impressed in relation to what she was talking about as far as local power in, for example, Norway, where they've got mm-hmm. so much power in the local communities that uh, when you look at the the regions in, in Scotland, the amount of power that quite a substantial region can hold, it doesn't actually address a lot of the localised issues by having such a large constituency shall we say yeah so community councils here i think their average budget is something like 400 pounds a year where whereas you know even in england it's it's a lot more than that yeah well that's a perfect example of uh, a distribution of power and input of feedback which should be stepped up is definitely on the local uh, local community council side of things so you've got a task ahead of you in 2021 is it made any easier by the fact that Lib Dem's position has completely reversed since that by-election? Because after that by-election, there was a general election in which the leader of the Lib Dems was bounced from my constituency and hopefully won't return to politics. But the Lib Dems have been a strong force in Shetland for many years but are now against the EU or rejoining the EU. So how different will do you expect that will have a bearing on the 2021 election? Yeah, I think it'll have an influence. I think there's two, there's two big things that are going to be different next time round. And one is the fact that, you know, by, well, we expect that Brexit will have happened and that the Lib Dem position has switched on that. But also just the Scottish government's handling of the coronavirus pandemic, even in the community I'm living in, in the south end of Shetland, you know, I speak to older people, for example, who, you know, will never have voted SNP in their entire lives. And they're saying, you know, Nicola has done an amazing job and they're recognising that that leadership. It remains to be seen what sort of Brexit we end up with. And I think that will have a huge influence, you know, whether we've got a Brexit and whether what kind of Brexit we end up with it's going to have a huge bearing on the on the result in May, I think. Yeah, well, as we as we speak at the moment, we still don't know, and we're only um, that the, this rubber band of talk seems to get pulled again for a few more days of extra yeah. talks. But it's, yeah. it's certainly looking like a hard Brexit. But uh, even if it isn't, it's going to very going to be a very minor or temporary deal. 
that looks mm. as though it could be put in place to help uh, transport. Otherwise, uh, things are going to go really down the tubes very quickly. So, how do you feel the mood will change because of Nicola's performance, confidence that it's given? My point of view is coming from someone who only got interested in politics at the time of the referendum. I never paid that much attention. But looking at Nicola's performance and what she has come out with over this pandemic, I think it has made a lot of people realise who weren't those who weren't interested in politics that mm-hmm. actually Scotland does have reduced powers and not the, yeah. the amount of power and responsibility that a lot of people probably thought automatically we had because we've got a parliament at Holyrood and yeah. they're now more aware of the the limitations on the powers but also the limitations on fundraising. So I think yeah. that will have had a big bearing on people turning now and thinking a bit more. Yeah, exactly. As you say, it's the limitations, but it's also the the potential to do better with the powers that we do have has been clearly demonstrated again as well. So, yeah, that can only help us uh, going into this election. I mean, the Shetland, the yes vote in Shetland in 2014 was, uh, you know, we were a long way off. And I think we've still got a lot of patient persuasion to do up here. But certainly we've, the Scottish government has built up a huge amount of trust locally. And um, I think, you know, fair-minded, lifelong liberal supporters here in Shetland. I can't, I just can't, you, you wonder where's the pathway to the sort of society that they want, you know, they, they, you know, they, they sincerely want a fairer society. They're maybe not the most economically radical, but uh, they believe in fairness and, yeah, just reducing <laughs> reducing suffering for the most vulnerable in society and uh, the direction the UK is headed. You know, I just, you know, you struggle to see how anyone could think that that we're, they're going to get what they want out of that scenario. So I'm, I'm really hopeful for me, for sure. Yeah. Well, I, I look upon it as myself as being a long-time Lib Dem voter before I came over to the SNP. Mm-hmm. And if so that's going to be a similarity in Shetland that a lot yeah. of people have given support for Lib Dem. And when they have awakened politically and realised, for me, it was a case of the lies. I couldn't trust. If I can't trust a party, mm-hmm. then they don't deserve my vote. And with what we saw with the Lib Dems, especially when they went into coalition with the Tories, that was the straw. That, that was the last straw for me. That broke the camel's back. And yeah. that's when I did waken up to what the implications of that vote. So yeah. what would and you... I mean, uh, sorry? You know, uh, prior to coronavirus, the first time that I had sort of yeah, been made aware of this idea of excess deaths was uh, following the 2008 austerity, you know. And there's a couple, a couple of different studies where one put it at 100,000 people, 100,000 excess deaths as a result of Westminster austerity policies, and another one put it at 130,000, which is double the deaths that we've seen from coronavirus. And that's through austerity, through cutting benefits and all the related, you know, suicide, mental health and deprivation that that causes. And that was uh, that was the Lib Dems who voted all of that through, you know. So I think, you know, people are certainly turning against them. And I know locally people you know who were actually who were actually very active in the party they were they were horrified 
when the Liberals went into that pact with the Tories. And, you know, the big, the big picture issues for us as a, as a country and as a species on this planet are, you know, it's, it's climate change. Alistair Kamichael voted for fracking. And it's, uh, it's this obscene levels of inequality that we have. And the fact that the UK is run by and for the billionaire class, you know, Rishi Sunak is a billionaire and Alistair Carmichael took a £10,000 bung from a billionaire Indian arms dealer. So there's just, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm really hopeful that that uh, support that the Liberals had by fair-minded people is uh, withering away in the face of that sort of evidence. Yeah, absolutely, because uh, it's certainly been some lessons learned with this pandemic. Uh, mm-hmm. in relation to the outrageous behaviour of the Tory party. But talking about COVID, how has it been, what sort of effect has it been in Shetland? And also, how has it reacted as far as local communities, where there's maybe smaller communities where there's either been no cases, but they've still had to go under a more general lockdown or limitations? Has that been a concern? Yeah. I mean, I can speak for myself. We were, we were based in Edinburgh while my wife was doing her masters at university, and we moved back. We moved back permanently in February there, as luck would have it, about three weeks before the lockdown hit. You know, just to be up here with a, you know, my son's two and a half, and just for him to be able to run outside in the garden and a much more kind of free range lifestyle than we would have had in. Uh, in Edinburgh or in a city. So I, I think we're very fortunate in a lot of ways in rural locations. But obviously, if for the people in rural locations who don't have the, maybe don't have the same sort of support network that I'm fortunate to have with my family, it can be much tougher. And, you know, fuel poverty is a huge problem up here. And people have, I think the number of, this was a couple of months ago, I read that the number of people on universal credit in Shetland has doubled. So, you know, it's been it's been really tough for a lot of people. Um, how many how many food a, bank how many food banks do you have? I believe it's just the one in Larwick, yeah. But there's a lot of there's other initiatives like the one of the community council where I am in the south of Shetland was handing out vouchers and vouchers or, or cash um, for food, but they were discovering that people were using it for heating as well because they were in such kind of dire straits. And I think, um, yeah, a lot of it is, is kind of hidden as well up here often as it is in many places, but it's certainly been hugely challenging for a lot of people and we're not out of the woods yet. How does that make you feel to live on an island which is surrounded by such wealth generation for the UK Treasury that you've got a food bank and you've got yeah, deprivation? Yeah. I mean, it's it's Scotland wide, though, isn't it? I studied in Norway and and briefly in Sweden as well. You know, the difference between I think it was the 2017 2018 figures. I think I was looking at about I think it was around 45 46 billion that the Norwegian sector was worth, and the North Sea UK was about the same. And the Norwegians put about half of it in the bank, and we taxed it at about three percent you know and that's been decades like that and it's it's ridiculous but it's also obscene when you think how many children we have in poverty and instead of having a state-owned oil company with a significant 
market share. And instead of taxing the industry properly, we just privatized the entire sector and allowed these companies, which are registered in UK linked tax havens to offshore the vast majority of that wealth. And uh, it's despicable really. And we need to, you know, unfortunately we have, we've missed the big oil and gas bonanza and we missed that boat. We're not getting it back, but the principle of operating and harnessing our public resources for the public good absolutely remains, you know, and we need to, that needs to be a key plank of an independent Scotland. Yeah. I'd like to cover the, the assets of Shetland in a moment, but first of all, you, you spoke at the recent SNP conference regarding tax evasion and also foreign aid. Uh, would you like to give listeners a bit of a background on that and your thoughts? Yeah, I recommend the book Treasure Islands. Is it Adam Shaxon, I think is the name of the guy that wrote it. But uh, just a real eye-opener for me. Obviously, I've, yeah, growing up in my household, I was always aware that, you know, the wealthy were and the corporations were not paying sufficient taxes. But until I read that book, Treasure Islands, I hadn't quite realised the extent to which it's orchestrated and supported by the City of London. And therefore, as voters, UK voters, we are all to some extent complicit in that, uh, voters and taxpayers. So, yeah, and I, my wife is an ecological economist from Chile. And yeah, I've learned a lot about colonialism and post-colonialism from her. And it seems to me that when the British Empire disintegrated, the city of London just changed into a different mode. And we use places like Singapore, Guernsey, Jersey, Isle of Man, multiple places in the Caribbean as basically staging posts for a kind of international web of high secrecy, low tax offshore havens for dirty money from all over the Commonwealth and, you know, many corrupt countries, whether whether it's Russians or oil companies operating in Africa or other developing countries, they're they're funneling wealth out of those countries and into tax havens that are actively supported by the City of London. Yeah, because um, I read recently of there was it's approximately uh, an estimate of about four hundred billion pounds a year is lost mm-hmm. due to tax abuse and evasion using these yeah. offshore so, facilities. I mean, to suggest you know to suggest that we can't afford to fund some foreign aid to the countries that we've spent, you know, well over a century extracting the wealth from. It's just uh, ridiculous and shameful, especially at the same time as we're, you know, through quantitative easing, I think it was about 450 billion uh, that was pumped into the economy following the 2008 financial crisis. And a lot of that went to financial institutions registered in tax havens. Yeah. Um, and in, I think it was the first six, nine months of the COVID response, we printed, uh, sorry, didn't, we quantitatively eased 400 odd billion again into the economy, again to, for example, airlines registered in tax havens. I so, know. That was crazy. Um, I think with certainly with uh, Virgin, there was one particular case that was hitting the headlines at the time. Mm-hmm. And we could do so much differently as an independent country. And that is probably, well, first of all, can I go back to the Shetland? It was on the asset side. Now, one of the uh, the biggest investments in Shetland at the time of the oil boom was Sullen Vaux. Mm-hmm. Now they've started extracting offshore 
and the oil's not even touching Shetland. It's going straight on to a tanker. How much of that is a loss of income to Shetland and what effect has it had? Yeah, I mean, there's there's gas coming ashore uh, from some of the new fields, um, but it's certainly, yeah, it's in a slow decline. And there's a lot of people, you know, very just, you know, justifiably concerned about what's going to happen there. I think it was, I read recently about 18,000 or 12,000 maybe jobs in the North Sea have been wiped out in, over the course of this year. And, you know, there's a real risk that we end up doing to oil and gas workers what Thatcher did to the miners if we don't get something in place soon. But at the same time, we've got a climate emergency that absolutely demands wartime levels of spending. It's not like we're short of, uh, we're not short of jobs that need doing, you know, and the money can, as we've seen in 2008 and in response to COVID and in the Iraq war, the money can be found, but we just need to make sure that we're helping people, some of them with directly relevant skills and others with, that are going to need to retrain, but to get out of the oil and gas sector as that declines and to get into uh, the new technologies of the future. And the Shetland Islands Council is uh, looking into alternative uses for Sulemvoe, talking a lot about its use potentially as a hydrogen, either green or blue hydrogen, green being hydrogen produced by renewables and blue being produced from fossil fuels by uh, capturing the carbon. You know, it's in a strategic location, uh, Sulemvo. It's a fa- fantastic deep water port. So there's certainly the possibility for it to continue and uh, have a sort of second lease of life around carbon capture or hydrogen or even LNG export. But it's very uncertain times. And the North Mainland of Shetland has had a number of calamities really recently with the the airport at Sulemvo closing down, uh, Murfield, Murfield Hotel burnt down, and there's people being laid off uh, from the terminal. So, yeah, it's very difficult times, but we we have huge potential in offshore renewables. You know, we need to get to net zero as, as soon as possible, but I always say to people, you know, my day job is installing and maintaining tidal turbines, and every time we do that, we use a boat which burns diesel, you know, so we're going to, we do need fossil fuels to get through the transition. And we're currently a net importer of fossil fuels. So there will be some work for that, for the terminal to do to the future, but it's certainly, it's in decline and we need to ramp up the, the cleaner options. Yeah. What is the population status now in Shetland? Is it increasing, decreasing? Is there the um, jobs... It's hovering around 23,000 and promote Shetland, the kind of Shetland Tourist Board is actively, you know, doing some great work to promote Shetland as a place to live. And I think everyone in Shetland knows that we need to attract more people, especially young families. And the Faroe Islands provide an example of how, uh, you know, they've managed to do that. I think they've got similar a similar land area, but nearly double the or slightly more than double the population size. And as soon as you have a larger population, you can support and justify, you know, larger pieces of infrastructure and health provision, even just take the ferry example, you know, if you double the size of people using the ferry, then we can afford to have a bigger ferry and the cost per head is going to go down. So yeah, and with climate change accelerating, it's becoming, you know, it's I think since coronavirus as well, there's been a lot of interest 
in people wanting to move up to Shetland. I, I know of a few examples of people who've taken you know, coronavirus has been the nudge to make them decide to come and live in Shetland. So it's yeah. another another quite hopeful area. I think I can definitely see it growing into the into the future. Yeah. Do you have much of a tourist industry as far as uh, ferry passenger liners coming in? Yeah, we did until this year. And it's been a huge blow to the local harbour authority and a lot of the, the shops on the street. Although I was talking to a couple of shopkeepers recently and they said that actually the, the local community is, I think, making much more of an effort to shop locally uh, than they might have been before. Um, yeah, and I, I grew up my my first job from... Uh, sort of early high school days was working on my dad's tourist boat so we would take uh, tourists on a sort of three-hour boat trip around the island that we live on to look at the the seabirds and the seals and uh, yeah we've got a huge amount to offer tourists but that's been uh, the whole sector's taken a big hit this year yeah now there's plans also for a rocket range in Shetland yeah there's space center um up in Unst so yeah Unst was historically an RAF base. There was RAF saxophone up there in the Cold War times and uh, had a bit of a renaissance, I think, in the 90s it was. So, yeah, they're, it's been, they've been trying to, you know, to rekindle that economy locally. And I think a lot of people are quite hopeful about this development. I understand it's Lockheed Martin that's involved. I, I don't really know the details about it. Um, yeah, I hope it's going to be a positive development for Shetland. I'm maintaining a little bit of healthy scepticism about what it means and the fact that Lockheed Martin's involved. But uh, Yeah, very much so. <laughs> a bit wary. <laughs> when you're speaking to or anyone approaches you in Shetland and asks you questions re- regarding independence, what sorts of questions are they? Are they the typical ones of what currency would we use and can we afford it? And um, if that's the case, what replies do you give? Yeah, I think can can we afford it is the is the big one, and the answer is yes. <laughs> but I don't think we should shy away. You know, there there will be challenges, and I pe- think people are people are tired of how long Brexit has dragged on, and they're tired uh, from coronavirus. So, you know, it it is it's not easy always to make that argument, but. I fall back on the Nordic comparison a lot. You know, we are surrounded by Nordic countries, Faroe, Iceland, Norway, Sweden, Denmark, here in Shetland, that have managed to create more shared prosperity, many of them with a lower amount of resources per head of population than we have here in Shetland and here in Scotland. And, you know, fundamentally, if you want to be a successful independent country, you need you need energy. You need water, you need an educated population. And if there's some additional resources in there, then that's a bonus, you know, and we have all of that coming out of our ears. So the business for Scotland materials, the Scotland, the brief book, I've certainly uh, been distributing a lot of those. And I think for Shetland, any argument for Scotland, for Scottish independence needs to be made through the sort of Shetland lens, so what what's in it for Shetland? And yeah, I, again, a point to the Nordic comparisons, but there there is a risk, you know. I'd say it's I'd say it's a very small minority, but there will be some people in Shetland who'd be quite happy for Shetland to become a crown dependency, 
Uh, now, I'm not a huge fan of either of those wor- either of those words, neither crown nor dependency. And, I'm uh, with you on that. <laughs> yeah, um, I think Guernsey, Jersey, Isle of Man. Yes, they've created a lot of wealth, but how have they done it? And I think generally it's by low tax and siphoning off uh, wealth, it's wealth, wealth sequestration rather than wealth creation often. And I'd like to see, I would credit Shetlanders with a bit more solidarity than that. And also, I think we could be perfectly prosperous without getting involved in a race to the bottom. Correct. So you're going to be campaigning from now through till May, but obviously with the pandemic, it's going to be a completely different ball game to how campaigning was able to be done in the past. So how do you think you'll be overcoming the, the struggles that we obviously have ahead of us? Yeah, I mentioned it jokingly the other night, but I, I am quite serious. Actually, you know, we had a huge amount of help from activists from the mainland last time, and I think they were really effective in, you know, adding to our sort of energetic campaign. But I think this time around, it has to be locally led because even if you know, even if everyone's vaccinated by May, you know, we've all experienced a bit of a mental reset, and you know yourself how, you know, even just trying to navigate your way through a supermarket or you know bumping into people it's all a bit more stilted and awkward than it was and i i don't think people in shetland are going to be would be at all receptive to the kind of campaign that we had last time where we're you know there were hordes of us knocking on going around knocking on doors and so we're lucky in shetland we've got quite a strong local media so we have an online newspaper the Shetland Times is the print version and it's available online as well and the Shetland News is online BBC Radio Shetland so and then social media there's going to be a lot of uh, social media content um, mm. I think creatively really about what we can what we can do but it's going to be interesting for sure yeah because I think when I was talking to Robert Leslie in Orkney about uh, campaigning and he was talking about the strength of the Lib Dems is using the post all the time so mm-hmm. I, are you upping the game as far as postal? Because certainly locally, that's what we're talking about here. So I just wonder if you're the same. Yeah, yeah, we'll be. I know there was a bit of a pushback up here in the last campaign, the amount that people were getting through their doors. That was partly because there was 10 candidates as well. Um, although I think most of it, the liberal output probably eclipsed the rest of it put together. I think there's a balance to be struck there. And I think we need to look at using more sustainable materials then you know there's a whole lot of paper going to landfill <laughs> yeah true um, yeah <laughs> so it's, it's, it's yeah they're not very green are they the Lib Dems I know it's the same here we well it's, it's hard you know we it's hard to find uh, the most eco materials especially at short notice in a campaign like that but we've uh, we've got a bit more notice this time so I'm certainly keen for it to be you know recycled paper uh-huh. and judicious use of materials rather than blanket bombardment. Yep. Right, we had the national conference, uh, the virtual uh, national conference uh, very recently. What were your impressions of the the final outcome? Yeah, I have to say I I swooped in to do the bits I was involved in and I, I wasn't too heavily involved in the rest of it. I am, you know, my baptism of fire into the SNP was really last August and I'm in it 
yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm fairly ignorant of a lot of the internal politics, and uh, I also think don't think it's the best use of my energies. But you know, we have internal elections; they're democratic, and the people who get the most votes from the members get in. And uh, yeah, I think a lot of members were very concerned that the NEC hadn't actually discussed any independence forward-looking discussion for eighteen months. And Chris Hanlon has done a piece today in the the National, which I think made very good reading in as he's now been elected as policy uh, convener uh, in relation to energising the discussion that activists have been calling for for years, to be honest, is mm-hmm. we need the structures in place to be able to put minds at rest when we're talking on the doorstep or we're talking to friends or family that need some confidence be behind them to enable them to, yes, I'll give it a yes vote this time. I was wanting to be yes, but at the last minute I voted no in 2014. We need to convince them and give a bit more. I don't more. know. I think I've, I feel like I've got the information I need to make that argument locally. Yep. My reading of the, the NEC stuff, you know, there's a, there's a couple of different, fault lines or, or wings in the party and it seemed to be yeah strung out along along those lines um i think there's a you know people in the party activists are understandably impatient to get independence uh, to secure independence and uh, i absolutely understand that and you know i i wish we were an independent normal country already but i would just say to folk to remember that the general population is not as convinced as we are. And certainly, you know, it's really eye-opening to go and knock, as I did, on hundreds of doors all around your local community. And, you know, my takeaway from that is we've got a lot of listening to do and a lot of patient persuasion, and we're sitting in a better position than we ever have been. And we need unity at this time. And that's not to say we can't have internal debates. We should do, but... Uh, I think we need to project a united front and keep the heat. <laughs> yeah. Well, from my point of view from it, uh, Tom, was the fact that as as an activist, uh, as a, as a yeser and an SNP member, I was looking for meat on the bone, like discussions regarding a constitution to give people uh, a satisfaction that, yes, we want power for the people of Scotland, but... We have yeah. to have a guideline, a, a break on where that power extends to, because if it doesn't have a constitution, we can see the results of it, but we only have to look down at Westminster. We also needed to talk about currency and a central bank. What are the implications? What happens yeah. about pensions? What happens about borrowing? What happens about getting the mortgage? What happens yeah. to the companies who are based in England that you get a mortgage from? All these questions need discussed but they weren't getting discussed. Mm-hmm. And that uh, that is what I believe people were more happy about as far as the results of conference is that direction is now being focused to actually answering those questions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I mean, yeah, I think the currency one's an important one. I'm, I'm really pleased that we are in a position now where we, we've committed to having our own currency within the you know a practicable time as, scheme. As soon as possible. <laughs> as soon yeah, as possible. That's what conference that's, agreed last year, yeah. Yeah, so 
as I was saying before about quantitative easing, you know, that's uh, having the powers of central government and a central bank are absolutely essential to sovereignty. I, I understand the desire to have those conversations, but I also understand the desire to continue with the slow and steady progress that has got us to where we are. And it's a fine balancing act. And I, yeah, I, I think the some debate on that is healthy in the party. As far as I'm concerned up here in Shetland, I, yeah, I would say, I would put my hand up and say it's not, not an area I've got massively involved in within the party because I'm just trying to speak and listen to as many people as I can in Shetland and make the case for independence up here and I don't really have any between my day job and my two and a half year old and my political activism on the ground here in Shetland I don't really have any time to get involved within with the internal debates within the party I don't think it's the best use of my time but I think debate is healthy so so if you People are listening right now in Shetland as well as the rest of Scotland and, in fact, around the world because Indy Live Radio is online. What would you be saying to people who need to consider voting for yourself who haven't previously voted for yourself? Go on my, go on my social media, send me a message and let's have a conversation about it, um, I would be saying. And, uh, yeah, I do feel that this election in May is kind of a fairly existential election that's um yeah likely to be the most important for a generation again we've had a few of those um <laughs> i hate hearing that word now <laughs> yeah yeah i know yeah you gotta be careful what you're saying but yeah we're getting dragged in an extreme right-wing direction by people who are responsible for and linked to the people who are you know, have given us rampant global econ- economic inequality, 26 billionaires owning more than half the population, the climate tri- crisis fueled by a small number of enormous corporations. And we have the opportunity to chart a different path and be a more responsible global citizen. And I think, you know, I think the turnout in Shetland last time was 50%, but in Lerwick, in the independence referendum, it was 80 plus, you know, and I, I hope we're going to see a much bigger turnout come May because, yeah, it's an important one. A very important one. How do you finally just what, what sort of impact would Shetland have or suffer if uh, we did have a cliff edge Brexit? No deal. So it's crofting and it's fishing. We export huge amounts, uh, millions of pounds worth of produce uh, on a weekly basis. I think some of the containers, you know, an individual container might contain millions of pounds worth of produce. And so if we lose the access to the markets or if there are delays at the the borders, we've, we've already had scenarios up here where hundreds of thousands of pounds worth of fish is sitting in a container and the ferry doesn't sail and all that money is lost, you know, so... We're delivering often live produce or just chilled produce from Shetland to, you know, London in the space of a day or two and to France or Spain in the case of, you know, a day or two longer. So if there's any disruption to that, it could be devastating. And the same goes for uh, crofting produce. I think, you know, almost every area of public life, if, you know, food prices are going to go up 
the cliff edge Brexit is just, you know, pick, pick a sector of the economy and there's going to probably be an impact on it. So I really hope it can be avoided. And I think it boils down to somebody described it as Boris Johnson. He's, he's got a, yeah, a choice between screwing over the ERG or screwing over the whole country. And I, I know which one I hope he chooses, but uh, it's not by any means guaranteed. If you ever read Yanis Varoufakis's book, Adults in the Room, about his negotiations with the EU, it's uh, quite enlightening as to the power dynamics and the tactics, which we seem to be going through a similar scenario uh, to what happened to Greece in some ways. Although in that, you know, I think we've brought a lot more of this on ourselves than the Greece did, than Greece did yep. uh, as the UK, just by the kind of delusional and out of date perspectives that Westminster has been pushing. Yeah. The vote for in favour of staying in the EU in 2016 was, I think, 55, 56% in favour of remaining in Shetland. Mm-hmm. Going forward, what do Shetlanders talk about preference for full membership of the EU again or uh, after membership or EEA? The fishing industry is just desperate to get out of the common fisheries policy. Certainly the, you know, the catching sector is desperate that they will not be kept in the common fisheries policy because, you know, although the common fisheries policy, you know, it has been somewhat effective in preserving stocks there are there are big imbalances between the amount of fish that we're able to catch as Shetland Scottish boats in our waters and you know some of the statistics that are available on you know the percentage of quota that we are allowed to catch compared to the percentage that foreign boats can catch is a you know you can understand if if fishing was the only issue to do with Europe it, you know, personally, I would find it quite understandable the Brexiteer position if it was based on on fishing alone. So they're going to be looking for, you know, if you know, for for the fishing community in Shetland, uh, remaining in Europe, in the EU, as part of the Common Fisheries Policy as it stands, is not not acceptable at all. If we were able to offer the fishing community in Shetland an EFTA-style arrangement with, you know. Faroese or Norwegian or Icelandic terms, I think actually you'd find that a lot of the fishing community would be very supportive of Scottish independence. They're not, it's not that they're against Scottish independence, it's that they desperately want out of the common fisheries policy. Yeah. And yeah, that was a policy that Scotland had very little or no input into because it was usually negotiated through Westminster. Yeah, yeah. And the SNP's been consistently against the common fisheries policy for, for decades. And sadly, you know, the reason why there's so many uh, foreign boats fishing so much quota around here is because it was sold by British owners. Most European countries don't and didn't privatise their fishing quota and allow it to be bought and sold to owners in foreign countries. But under Thatcher, like everything else, and Heath before that, um, we we allowed British quota to be bought, and that's why that's why so much quota is foreign owned. It's not just the problems with the common fisheries policy; it's also because British skippers sold it overseas, and that's now 
there's not much that can be done about that now. Yeah, okay. On that point, uh, finally then, Tom, what about gunboat diplomacy? If, if these if these quotas are foreign-owned and they want to come in and they own the quotas, how does that work as far as uh, Boris Johnson sending out his yeah, I ACB mean, stuff? It's just indicative of the fact the EU has been the foundation of peace and prosperity across this whole continent, a continent, and it is fundamentally a peace project. And I think, you know, there it's yeah, classic Tory saber rattling. Um, I don't think it's going to help the situation at all, except yeah, maybe for their egos. Yeah, I was very pleased to hear that it's the Scottish. Uh, Police Scotland cons- uh, chief constable who would make a decision on that basis, and it wouldn't ha- it wouldn't happen. Yeah. Well, Tom, it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much indeed for your time. Very pleased to have you on IndieLive Radio uh, for the first time, and look forward to sp- uh, speaking to you in the future. Yeah, thanks for the invitation. Just let me know. Of course, best of luck for May twenty twenty one, and uh, because I think the whole of Scotland would celebrate, just like we did here in my constituency when Amy Callaghan took Joe Swinson's seat, there would be celebrations throughout Scotland if you could take Shetland for the SNP. And the people of Shetland actually saw the light and realised the important uh, step they would be taking. Yeah, it's not about me, but it's the best thing for, for Shetland. And I think, you know, it's clearer than ever that if we want to build a fairer, greener society, we have to do that through independence. So I'm certainly going to be making that case very strongly. Well, I hope the people of Shetland will get behind you and give you a massive vote come May. Thanks very much indeed, Tom. Thanks, Ray. Cheers. Indy Proud, Indy Proud, on Indy Live Radio. Indy Proud,